The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So over the last few weeks, we've been exploring the Four Noble Truths in some depth and have covered or discussed or explored First Noble Truth, Second Noble Truth, some. And um, I'm going to continue the Second Noble Truth more in depth in a, in a few weeks when I get back from teaching a retreat. But today what I'd like to do is to kind of look at the First and Second Noble Truths together um, there's a um, so the noble tr- the four noble truths are central teachings of the Buddhist um, understanding. When the Buddha um, set out on his own journey, his main question was, "Is it possible to be free from suffering?" Looking around his his life, the life of others, he saw that, that, that people were suffering a lot and that was his question. Is it possible to be free from suffering? And so he went on this, um, this quest, a journey, kind of a personal journey to uh, see if he could come to the answer to that question. And he explored the various teachings of his day, the, the meditative practices, the renunciate practices, the, the, um, um, the practices of really denying the body uh, of of and and actually more than denying the body <laughs> uh, actually at, at one point before um, his his understanding around suffering, he had denied his body of food to the extent that it is said that when he touched his belly, he could feel his backbone. So you know, really, really severe denial of of um, of basic bodily needs, and at some point, he recognized that both the the path that the the meditation teachers were teaching, which was a lot of concentration practices, um, just finding the way into very pleasant abidings in the present moment, that that when he came out of those um, those sta- states of meditation, it there there still was the problem of suffering, and so it hadn't that hadn't solved his problem, and the the um, the denying his body of of the basic bodily needs had also not. Uh, solved his problem, solved solved the question, or answered his question: Is it possible to be free from suffering? Both of those routes, which were common in the, his day, um, didn't answer his own question, and so he he began. He decided after he had really denied himself from uh, from food that he 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 said, "This is definitely not the way." <laughs> not going to be able to find my my way to the answer to this question without having nourishment and so he 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 uh, regained his health essentially uh, my you know probably over some weeks he regained his health by nourishing his body again and then um and then he had this kind of memory or recollection of having entered into a state of kind of very settled and relaxed mind um while he was when he was a child while he was watching his father do a ritual um, planting, plowing ceremony in the spring. 
And his question, he, sa- he said, I wonder if there's a pathway there through that, that avenue. Um, and and he, he, he said to have recognized, yes, that, that does seem to be a pathway. And so he, he began exploring the, um, the kind of the states of concentration, but with a different aim than um, just concentrating the mind to feel good in the present moment. This is a key shift, actually. The teachings of, the t- of, of his day really were, um, were emphasizing the, emphasizing the, um, the pleasure you could get from being concentrated and just that was what they went for. And, and when the Buddha had his own recognition around maybe these states of concert, con- concentration are part of the path that would help me to understand suffering. And so that's what he began exploring is using concentration of mind to turn his attention to this question of suffering. Not to explore concentration just to feel good in the moment, but to begin to understand what this suffering is. And so that's, that was his, his turning. That's really one of the, the, the differences in a way of his teaching from, or one of the additions in his teaching than the teachings at the t- at, of, the, of his day. He, he used the concentration not as an end, but as a, a tool because when the mind becomes very settled, it can see into what's happening here in our system, in our mind and body. And so he began exploring that question. Um, and so this, this question of suffering leads to the framing of the Four Noble Truths when he is said to have broken through to his understanding. It, it is said that he framed it in terms of these, these Noble Truths. There is suffering there is um, the, the, the suffering arises with craving is his understanding. And so, you know, it's not the suffering that the Buddha is talking about here is not, not simply unpleasantness of experience. The Buddha really clearly distinguished that experience can be unpleasant and will be unpleasant that being in a human body, there will be unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral experience. But this unpleasant experience is not what he called this, this dukkha, this suffering. Um, he, he pointed to the, uh, the, the craving for um, things to be the way we'd like them to be, the craving for this situation in this moment to be other than what it is or to be a certain way. So this craving, uh, this is the, the understanding of the second noble truth, the craving, when we are suffering, this craving is happening in our minds. And so I spent quite a bit of time talking about craving last week. We'll talk a little bit about it today, but, but um, um, one of the key um, pieces to, to understand about craving so it's, it's it's a delicate understanding, really, um, because so much of what we, um, how we engage in our life, 
is is motivated by craving. And when we're in the kind of the world of craving, that state, that kind of place um, convinces us and has the belief, it's kind of shot through with the belief that craving is the way anything happens in the world. Craving is, is how things get done, let's say. And the, um, at, at, the, at the end of the class last week, somebody came up to me and said, if we let go of that craving, because this is actually the teaching, the, the, the associated with the first noble truth is, a, is an injunction or a kind of encouragement to understand it to understand it not in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way. And I'll cover that. I'll talk about that a little bit more also. And then with craving, the encouragement is to abandon it, to let go of craving. And at the end of the class, um, one of you came up and, and said, if we let go of craving, why would we do anything and this is, you know, this is really that, that question. But, but, you know, again, the, the craving is a particular kind of motivation to act, a particular flavor of that. And it has got a kind of a stickiness to it. There is also motivation to act in this world. And the word in Pali is chanda, it is uh, translated often as desire. And that, that um, kind of motivation, that, that chanda, that, that desire, motivates us to do, to act in this world. And it can be um, connected with both wholesome intention as well as unwholesome. And so that, that, that um, chanda is itself inherently kind of neutral, that, that desire, this word that is often translated as desire, is neutral. It's, not either, it's neither good nor bad. It's neither helpful nor unhelpful. It is simply this urge to act in the world. And what it's associated with, the, the motivation or the, the impulse that it's associated with, is what creates its kind of ripples in the world. What creates its outcome or its its influence in the world, and so this uh, this desire can be associated with compassion and love and wisdom and generosity, or it could be associated with aversion, greed, delusion. When that that desire is associated with aversion and greed and confusion, it becomes this tanha becomes this craving. And so the, 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 the part about a, uh, understanding suffering is to begin to recognize that this kind of, this particular kind of craving can be released. And it doesn't mean that we will we'll just be like lumps, you know. It's like we, we might think that if we, if we abandon or release that craving that we wouldn't do anything. And yet, this is not the way it works. So the, the, the exploration around craving begins to help us to see that. 
begins to help us to see that the letting go of craving doesn't mean that we don't act and engage in the world in beautiful ways. And so the, uh, the Buddha pointed to this particular kind of experience related to craving and said, this is what suffering is. And then he pointed to the possibility that it is possible for craving to release. It is very strongly conditioned in us. We have so much habit around craving, partly because it is how we've gotten things done. It is how we have achieved certain measure of happiness in our lives. We get something that we want. We crave something. We get it. There's a, there's a bit of like feeling good about that. And that we have something that we like. It feels good. That's, that's, that's how we have navigated this world. And, and we have kind of come to, believe, come to believe that that is the best kind of happiness that's out there, is getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, having people think about this the way we want them to, being in control of situations, this kind of, this kind of um, uh, tumbling on that this is how we have navigated the world and how we have found some measure of happiness. And yet, I think part of what the Buddha points to in this third noble truth, he, he said the ending of craving is the ending of suffering. And this is, actually it's pointed to as being the great happiness. That this is a, a different kind of happiness a deeper kind of happiness than is possible by just simply getting what we want. And it's a happiness that comes with release, not with uh, acquisition. So it's a, it takes some degree of uh, kind of faith to step into that because our whole lives we have, we've had confirmation that getting what we want is the way to go. And to let go of that feels kind of untethered at times. To, to trust that if I, if I um, up explore experience in a different direction, that a different kind of happiness will be available. So this is the third noble truth, that the ending of craving is this kind of deep happiness, release, peace, and again, that peace, you know, when we hear the word peace, it sounds very um, um, non-active. And yet, the peace of this kind of release is not a, um, uh, a non-motivated peace. It's, I would call it an engaged peace, perhaps engaged in the world. And so then, the, so this is this third noble truth, and the, the third noble truth, the action associated with that is we should realize the ending of suffering. So we can realize this for ourselves. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path. There is, it's not, it's not just, we, it's not just a kind of a random fluke that we can experience this, that there's a path that can be cultivated, tools that we can bring to understanding our 
our system, our hearts, our minds, understanding suffering. And so this is the, the Eightfold Path. Wise understanding, wise view, wise speech, wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And this is a set of kind of practices, we could call them practices, that support our hearts, our minds, create skillful relationship in the world, with our, our communities. So it's got an ethical component to it. And it has this, cu- this component of cultivating uh, our own understanding of our minds. And so this fourth noble truth, the, the, the cultivation of the path, is the way in which we engage with that first noble truth, understanding suffering. So kind of we, we loop back to the first noble truth through using the tools of the eightfold path we explore understanding suffering and so this is the the place i'd like to to look is the the first and second noble truth in the in the very first um, discourse that the buddha gave he he talked about understandings insights that came for him while he was exploring suffering and craving and they're connected to these actions. So the first, the first noble truth, there are three insights that he said he had around suffering. The first was, this is suffering. So this sounds, it took me a while to really land with this one. But it is really pointing to the present moment experience. The way this is framed, this is suffering. What's happening in the present moment. It may not be that suffering is happening in the present moment, but when it is, the recognition, oh, this is suffering. This is experience is suffering that is actually an insight it's an understanding again around the the um uh, what's arising right now it's it's happening right now so an example um that kind of kind of highlighted this for me at one point in my practice Uh, i was on a retreat and seeing a lot, a kind of a memory come up of mm. I, was, I had been in a play and I'd forgotten a line in the play. And, you know, there's that kind of horrific pause where there's silence and the whole audience is looking up at me and I'm looking back at them. So it was very embarrassing. So embarrassment was there. And, um, and so during the retreat, for some reason, this memory kept coming up. And I experienced the embarrassment of that moment over and over again. At some point, so instead of being like thinking of the embarrassment as either a problem or as something in the past that was revisiting me, I began to recognize and understand, oh, this embarrassment is now and this is suffering now. That this is that the, the, the thoughts, the thoughts of this, the memory arising, 
those are arising now too. It's, it's not the same suffering that happened four years ago. It's not that same suffering. It's, it's suffering that's happening now. And so this, this is a kind of a recognition and this is an understanding. Oh, this is suffering. This is what is experiencing right now. This is suffering. And the next piece of the insight that the Buddha had around, around um, suffering was, oh, this suffering should be understood. That's the second insight. Should be understood. So this understanding that the Buddha is pointing to here is not an intellectual understanding. So in that example of the, of the play, um, you know, thinking about, well, you know, why, why, why was I embarrassed? Well, I forgot the line and I didn't listen to the, you know, I didn't have the tools at that time to, to know how to like jump over to the next part of the play. So it's like, you know, just that might be how the mind might, might think about it. Instead, what the Buddha is pointing to by understanding is not an intellectual reflection, but an understanding of what is this experience? What is the, the human experience of this embarrassment in this case? What does it feel like? So the understanding that's being pointed to here is not a, an intellectual understanding, but an experiential recognition of the state of body, of mind. How is this experience happening now in the present moment? What, what are the 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 components of it how does it feel how does it feel in the body what are the thoughts associated with it what's the mind doing so so that's the understanding that the that the buddha is pointing to here and the insight here again the the, the kind of the subtlety around this is is um okay so this is suffering and it should be understood in this way of curiosity about what is this experience now, here, in the present moment, rather than our normal way of meeting that kind of experience, would, which would be, okay, how do, I, how do I figure out how to solve this problem? How do I get rid of this feeling by doing my normal kind of things with it? Like, trying to convince myself, well, okay, I didn't, I didn't have the tools then, it was understandable, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, just trying to kind of convince myself to not feel that embarrassment in the moment. Now, this is a key, a key also a key understanding around this exploration in the present moment. Um, because what is happening in the present moment We, we often have this sense of, so if something really, you know, challenging is happening or, or there's, a, there's a, 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 a kind of a reactivity to something that's happening. The, the conditions that have led to that in this moment have happened and what is happening here now is already happening. And so this is where our work is, is in looking at what has come to be in this moment. 
this is our work. What, what has come to be? The, the term in Pali, it's actually used quite a bit in the suttas. It's, um, the translation is something like, one understands as it actually is. And the, the Pali term is yata bhuta. As it has come to be. One understands as it has come to be. And so that is our, our exploration, is what has come to be in this moment? This is not to say that, and actually what seems to happen as we explore what has come to be in this moment, you know, kind of the whole complex of this mess of what's come to be in this moment, it begins to create the conditions for us to step forward into the next moment with more skill, acting rather than from that reactivity, instead acting from that compassion and that wisdom. And so the, 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 the curiosity and the willingness to explore what has come to be creates the conditions for us to step forward with action in the next moment with some more skill. So this uh, suffering should be understood is pointing to that, understanding what has come to be in this moment. And the, the understanding about it is that it's valuable to do that. This insight around suffering should be understood is the recognition that it's valuable to understand suffering in this way. That it, it creates different conditions in our lives to understand things in that way. That this curiosity about what's here, what has come to be, understanding what has come to be, understanding that it is conditioned from the past, that, that what has come to be has, has multiple components to it. And so there's that, that understanding what has come to be. That it should be understood as recognizing oh, this will support the movement into the future in a new way. So that's that understanding. Suffering should be understood. And actually, as we practice in this way, as we explore understanding our suffering, understanding what's happening in our system in this way, In that split second, my mind just let go (laughs) of what it was going to say next. (laughs) Maybe it will come back. (laughs) So let's see. So understanding that it should, that it should be understood. Uh, It should be understood. That we begin to be curious about that. And then... The third insight is suffering has been understood. So it has been seen through in a way. That when suffering has been understood, there's a very natural release of the suffering that happens. Because the mind begins to understand, 
And so this, this exploration of what has come to be, the mind begins to let go of the craving, of the, of the patterns that are kind of inside of that suffering, begins to release that. It's the wisdom that comes through this exploration. So that wisdom and that understanding come together. The cultivation of the understanding leads to this wisdom. And then the, uh, the suffering has been understood. The mind lets it go. The mind begins to naturally release it. The wisdom that has been developed naturally points the mind towards letting go. And some of this wisdom is about basically understanding. I, the way I've, I've come to frame it is that as we begin to explore what has come to be and see it as suffering, see that it should be understood, then the... God, it happened again. <laughs> That's so interesting. Oh, let me see. So as, ah, here it is. Okay, so as we, as we start to see um, the, the suffering, the, the system, our kind of organism begins to recognize that suffering, that the way, our habitual way of engaging with suffering, our usual ways of, of engaging, and so all of the reactivity, the, the greed, the aversion, that they are not in the present moment because we're looking in the present moment. We are, we are um, exploring what has come to be in the present moment. These, these experiences of suffering are understood as not conducive to well-being. And so this is, again, this, this shift around the belief that's kind of embedded in the reactivity of aversion, of greed, of I'm the way you're going to get things done here. I'm the way you're going to, like, be, be, have some happiness, then our mind begins to understand that through the, through the engagement with those, with, we, with those coming up in our system, having arisen in our system, we are already suffering. There is already suffering in the system. It is not well-being to be, to be craving. It is not well-being to have aversion. And so this is, this is, this points to kind of our, our view around craving and aversion that when I get that thing, when I get rid of that thing, then I'll be happy is, is kind of, we're willing through that greed, that craving and aversion to, to let go of well-being here and now for the possibility of some moment of well-being in the future. And so as we, as we explore the experience arising in the present moment, this is suffering. We understand it as suffering in the present moment. Our system understands that and understands that this is not the way. And so the, the, the wisdom of our organism, because there's kind of a natural movement in our organism that wants to move in the direction of well-being. This is part of how we are put together as as, as human beings. Our system wants to move towards well-being and we have that, that kind of movement of that, the natural movement towards well-being has kind of been co-opted by delusion, by believing that 
aversion and greed and craving are going to have to produce well-being. And so the, uh, the practice of seeing our suffering begins to expose that delusion. And seeing that this moment's experience is suffering, our system begins to recognize, oh, this is not the way. Our, our organism begins to head us in, the dire- in a different direction because our organism understands. Our organism is getting different information. I like to think about the, the mindfulness practices giving our, our bodies and minds a different, different education about what actually happiness is. And so this is how this works. This is how the, 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 the suffering has been understood. Allows that release, leads to that shift. Because it's kind of in our system that when our, our um, mind and bodies get the education about suffering, that greed and aversion and confusion are not conducive towards actual well-being. Our system begins to kind of search. For me, it kind of feels like it kind of, it kind of looks for different ways to navigate. And releasing the craving is one of those things it begins to come to. So this leads to the second noble truth the, and the, the action associated with that, abandoning craving. We could also use the word letting go. And again, around the second noble truth, there's three understandings, insights that the Buddha pointed to. They are um, essentially, it's like th- it's expressed sometimes as this is the arising of suffering. And that another way to express it is with craving. With the arising of craving is the arising of suffering. And so this is the first understanding is, again, this, this pointing to just kind of the structure of, of how it works. With craving comes suffering. With this kind of, you know, something happening in the mind in the present moment. So back to that analogy or that, that, that example around the, um, the play so this is the arising of suffering and that craving arises with, with suffering. Craving is arising and suffering arises with craving. Um, so the, the seeing in that moment that, okay, this embarrassment experienced right now, this is suffering in this present moment. But there was also a beginning of seeing. So many times I watched that memory arise and then the embarrassment kind of just be pulled in. It, it felt like they came together, like the, the memory inherently had the embarrassment in it. And yet over and over again, watching this, beginning to see that as the memory comes, there's the memory arising in the mind of standing on that stage in front of this audience, and, and then the embarrassment is constructed. The embarrassment arose actively in the mind, not inherently with that memory, but it's like the memory came and then there was this process around kind of identifying with that memory. This 
connection, a kind of this craving, bizarrely craving for that experience of embarrassment again. It seems like so, uh, you know, why would we do that? And yet we do, <laughs> you know, that, that, that our minds will kind of hook into its habits. Why does it hook into, it hooks into its habits because they are habits, because we have practiced these things in the past. We have engaged in the past in this way. And so th- what we've done in the past tends to be how we are now. And so that typically in that kind of a situation is don't want to be here now, you know, wanting to disappear, you know, wanting to, craving this identity of disappearance and yet not able to do that and the the embarrassment resulting. So all of that, it's like that the memory arising was one thing. And then a whole process of identification arose in that moment. Many years later, that whole process of identification arose and the embarrassment arose with it. And so there's this, process that happens in our minds around the arising of suffering. And so again, this is, this is an understanding. Oh, this is the arising of suffering, seeing the conditions, seeing that suffering is conditioned. It's not only conditioned by the past. I mean, this is actually really good news in a way. I mean, certainly didn't feel like good news when I saw it and felt it in that moment, over and over again, feeling that embarrassment, over and over again, feeling that sense of ugh, yickiness. It didn't feel like good news. And yet, what, as, as the, the practice has, has began to understand this, so that exploring the, what has come to be, the mind began to recognize that, oh, this is constructed in this moment. It's constructed, it, the, the situation happened in the past, so there are conditions from the past. And this is a lot of, of, of what's happening in the present moment, is this, the past is coming into the present moment through our thoughts, through our, our you know, how we have been shaped, through our cultures. You know, so the, all of the conditioning from the past is, is coming into this present moment. And then in the present moment, there is the... Um, uh, whether th- that experience is pleasant or unpleasant. And then there is um, our relationship to that in this moment. So there's the, the history from the past, and there's our response to it now. And typically, because of the strong conditioning of the past, we are responding to whatever is arising in this moment based on our conditioning. And yet when we bring mindfulness to our experience, we begin, there, there begins to be a different choice there, a different possibility. So we can, we can begin to, to recognize, okay, this is what's arising. And the first thing that we begin to have a different relationship with is what has come to be, in this case, the whole complex of the embarrassment, that whole thing. That whole complex of that came to be. And understanding that. That's the first thing that we get to have a different relationship with. Instead of feeling like letting that kind of pile on itself over and over again. Why did I have to do that? What, what, you know, what can I do to never have that happen again? It's, oh, this is what embarrassment feels like. That shift is such a huge shift. It's a huge, it's a vast difference between 
being caught by something and engaging in our habitual patterns around it versus recognizing it as, oh, this is what's happening right now. So this is beginning to recognize the what is coming to be. What has come to be, has come to be independence on conditions. So this is the arising of suffering. And the, the second piece, the second insight is this craving should be abandoned. This craving should be let go of. This craving should be released. This is a big leap um, for us. Um, first of all, because of what our, you know, we have, we have different kind of sense of what it would mean to abandon craving. You know, first of all, there's our, our kind of deep-seated belief that craving is what's kind of making the world go round. Craving is what's making us choose and act and what's giving us the least, that the, what, what is giving us the little bits of happiness that we do manage to come to in our lives. And so letting go of that feels like we're, you know, just letting the bottom drop out. And so the, it takes a little bit of, of kind of the, the confidence of there will be something, or there's, a, there's a, a, a deeper kind of happiness possible in that releasing of craving. And the, the understanding of that does begin to happen as we, as we understand our suffering. So this first noble truth and the exploration of what has come to be, the understanding of it and our system kind of naturally finding its way to the letting go, we get little tastes of that. We get tastes of the moment when the mind kind of lets go around craving. Oh, there's this memory arising and the, the, my initial kind of, in that, in that experience, the initial thing was there was the, the memory and the embarrassment and the craving to get rid of the embarrassment. So the first piece of that exploration was having the trust that it was okay to feel embarrassed and to know that. It was, that was okay. So that was the kind of letting go of the craving around wanting to get rid of the embarrassment that created a lot more space. And it's just like, oh, embarrassment's arising. And then over time, the mind began to understand that the, the whole process of construction of the embarrassment was separate from the memory. And the memory can arise. And it can just be like blue. It's just like, it's just like looking at the sky. It's, there's no charge to it at all. It's just... A thought. A thought is just a thought. And then what happens very quickly is this kind of arising of this whole kind of complex or process of identification and reaction and craving and aversion. They are separate. And so recognizing that possibility. I mean, these memories, memories are there. If I thought I had to get rid of, oh, that was the one from a long time ago. <laughs> if I thought I had to get rid of all of those memories in order to have happiness, it would be a hopeless prospect. If we thought we had to change all unpleasantness into pleasantness in order to be okay, it would be hopeless. And yet it is this kind of, this recognition of the 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 possibility of having 
a, a wholesome desire around pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral instead of this craving desire around pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. A wholesome desire around unpleasant may be the wish to alleviate suffering in our world, for ourselves, for our families, for our communities. A wholesome desire to alleviate suffering. And so this um, craving should be abandoned. Again, the first understanding is the should be part of it. Not that we will simply be able to abandon it, but that the movement or the direction around craving is not to follow through on it when it's seen. We're not always going to see it. But instead to explore abandoning it. And abandoning has different different kind of practices or different kind of tools around abandoning. I'll just spend a, a couple minutes exploring with you. First, the word abandoning itself. Um, this understanding about suffering should be abandoned. My sense of the word abandoned there and why that understanding is relevant is kind of, um, is, is connected to the, the meaning of the word abandon not in terms of abandoning children. I mean, we often use the word abandon to mean you're, you're abandoning something that needs to be taken care of. But there's another use of the word abandon, which is like in the phrase, abandon ship. And this is abandoning a situation when one understands there's danger in that situation. So we abandon ship when we understand staying on the sinking ship will mean we're going down with the ship. And so abandon, we, abandoning suffering, is abandoning craving is that kind of understanding. That we understand that staying with craving is taking us down. It's not helpful. And so we understand there's danger in the craving, essentially. It's, it's dangerous to be caught by that craving. It's dangerous because it tends to perpetuate the pattern of craving itself. And it's dangerous because it's um, suffering in and of itself. (laughs) And so this abandoning, the abandoning of the danger of craving. This is, so this uh, understanding suffering, uh, craving should be abandoned reflects that understanding that craving creates danger in our hearts and minds. It creates conditions that continue to lead us into suffering. And so that's that understanding. Craving should be abandoned. Then the... um, uh, Some tools, or just... I just briefly speak about some... um, um, different ways to approach abandoning because you know the word itself sounds very active like we're actively walking away from something or jumping off of that ship and there are some active practices around abandoning and they often include practices when um, you know practices of, of redirecting the attention when something is particularly challenging they're both active and receptive practices. 
around abandoning. And so I'd say that actually a lot of our practice around abandoning is more receptive or, or that's, at least for me, this is where a lot of the freedom has happened from a more um, willingness to be with suffering and not act on it that understanding of suffering and the kind of the movement of our system towards letting go, that when we trust or when we explore the understanding of suffering, the abandoning happens as a result of the understanding. So this is, this is, um, Again, a point of trust, because we feel like in order to be the, in order to abandon, we have to do something. We have to be, be in charge of the abandoning. And yet, what we can actually do a lot of the time is not actively put down craving or say, you know, it's like, wouldn't that be nice if we could do that? Like, yeah, oh, there's aversion arising. Oh, that's not useful. I see it's dangerous. I'll just stop doing that. We don't seem to be able to do that. Very often, we don't seem to be able to do that. Sometimes we, we can. Sometimes there is the, the, a, a recognition of, oh, yes, yeah, I've been there, done that. Whew, the mind can let it go. But much of the time, what needs to happen is that we cultivate the understanding which leads to the abandoning. So this is, a, this is an act of trust. This, uh, and this is... The suffering has been understood, this third understanding. The, I'm mean, sorry, the, the suffering, the craving has been abandoned, the third insight associated with the second noble truth. That is, again, the, the system naturally letting go, or the system letting go of craving, because it understands it. So that these two noble truths, that, that, that they're intimately connected. It's like they happen together. That as we understand suffering, we understand that craving is in the mix. And the system begins to have the kind of movement towards releasing and letting go of it. So the understanding is a lot of where our work is. That that understanding creates the conditions for the release. And there are some active practices too in my experience, those, the, the active practices are more um, kind of relevant when we aren't able, when the, when the pattern or the, the habit, the craving is so strong that the mindfulness isn't quite able to meet it. Sometimes that happens, that, that the mindfulness can't quite be with it. If we try to be mindful of it, it just kind of takes us down. So... There are times when it's useful to do something else, to redirect the attention. And yet, if we can be mindful, if we can be curious and explore the understanding of suffering, this is a very direct route to that letting go. The, the redirecting, often what it does is it kind of puts something on hold. You know, it kind of lets it be on hold for a little while while we put our attention on something else. And so redirecting the attention. I sometimes call it changing the channel. So there's some kind of reactivity, an anger or a frustration or a, uh, a craving. And we realize, wow, yep, that's stronger than my capacity to be mindful. So I'm going to put my attention on something else right now. I'm going to put my attention on my feet, on the ground, really 
strongly directing the attention elsewhere. That movement cannot be done with aversion. That shift, that redirecting of the attention, if it's done with aversion, then that, that kind of will kind of unwittingly reinforce or strengthen that pattern. And so this is a delicate move, this, these active paths, these active practices around letting go and abandoning are very delicate and really we need to kind of cultivate that capacity to say, yep, you can be there, I'm just going to put my attention on something else. You know, so really just being very respectful of it and yet letting your attention be elsewhere. This can also be very powerful. I've had, I've had experiences. It's, it's not the norm for me, but um, it does happen at times when we redirect in that way over and over again, just letting go, abandoning, engaging with essentially. So for me, it was around looking at anger over and over again and seeing the anger was very strong probably not the time to be mindful of it. So I would notice the anger. It would be like, yep, I see you. So there was that moment of seeing it, understanding it as suffering, that much of it. And then it's like, yep, going to put my attention on something else. Over and over again, for a couple years, that's how I worked with a particular anger, one particular anger. And what happened over time was that the mind that 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 pattern that led to the arising of anger it was related to a thought and a reaction to that thought again the thought of a person that i was angry with and a kind of a spinning up of the identity around that person what they'd done you know how they'd done me wrong so all of that was in there in the creation of the anger and so letting go of that over and over again you know it's like yep i see you anger and i'm going to put my attention on something else not with aversion but just redirecting over the course of a couple of years, that pattern got weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And finally, one day, I noticed, what I actually remembered noticing was, wow, that hasn't happened in a long time. I haven't noticed that anger in a long time. And even thinking about it, having the person come up in my mind in that moment, I could not find the anger. It was gone. I could not even reconstruct it. And so sometimes that abandoning through redirecting can actually lead to the full releasing of a particular kind of suffering. It can happen. And so both of these methods of abandoning suffering can be useful. Both the the active of redirecting and the, the more receptive of curiosity and understanding. And so this is the piece really that I wanted to point to is the understanding and abandoning come right together. These two actions come right together in our practice of mindfulness. And it's time to stop. So thank you for your attention. And I'll be away for about a month, um, I'm teaching a retreat on the East Coast. Um, this group will continue. There are, I uh, have people coming to teach the class, but I'll pick up on another, a kind of a deeper dive into the Second Noble Truth when I return. So there's much more to say about the Second Noble Truth. Thank you.